Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Congressman John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts had just cast a nay vote on a resolution thanking American officers and soldiers for the victories of the Mexican War. And then, in the very next moment, he suffered a stroke. Lingering for the next two days in the chambers of the Speaker of the House, he died on February 23, 1848. Douglas Egerton's new book, Heirs of an Honor Name, The Decline of the Adams Family and the Rise of Modern America, begins with John Quincy Adams' collapse and it ends with his grandson observing that my grandfather is the main figure. We are appendages only. In between is a narrative of family of brilliant and highly unlikable figures, and perhaps also a kind of meditation on American progress. Douglas R. Egerton is professor of history at Lemoyne College. The author of numerous books, his most recent were A Documentary History of the Denmark Vizia Affair and Thunder at the Gates, The Black Civil War Regiments That Redeemed America. This is his second appearance on Historically Thinking. When he was last with us, he discussed Reconstruction, based heavily on the research of his book, The Wars of Reconstruction, The Brief Violent History of America's Most Progressive Era. Doug Egerton, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So I asked you what a lot of people have asked you, why this book? Um, When I first read you, it was about Gabriel's Rebellion, Then we kind of moved on through the history of race and the South. And now the Adams family. Why? Well, each of my books tends to kind of lead to the next. And and this actually was an outgrowth of of two books. Um, One of my books that that, uh, you didn't mention was on the election of 1860 called The Year of Meteors. Um, And and not just the election, but also the aftermath and and the... um, uh, the attempts to, to conciliate the South and bring that back into the Union. And so Charles Francis Adams was a congressman at the time, senior, um, and was involved. He was a member of the Committee of 33, which was a House committee trying to find some kind of compromise solution package. And so I, I first became aware of his attempts to kind of mediate between the, the more progressive elements of his party, people like Charles Sumner, his his one-time friend, I mean, and, and then the White South. Um, and then in my last book, Thunder at the Gates, I followed 14 soldiers who were members of the pioneering black regiments, 54th, 55th, and, and 5th Cavalry. Um, and four of those guys were, were white officers, and one was Charles Francis Adams Jr., who I found to be fascinating in, in a truly dislikable way. Um, and I thought, okay, there's 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 more to the story. And, and of course, you know, John Quincy and John get all the attention in the last five years, two big fat biographies of, of uh, uh, John Quincy Adams. Um, a really good book published in the last year by uh, friends of mine, Andy Burstein and, and Nancy Eisenberg, uh, on the presidencies of the first two Adams. Um, and, and so the third and fourth generation get sort of pushed to the side because they never kind of make it to the the brass ring. They don't get the, the presidency. Although I can say that I, at least I was in a generation of people taking American intellectual history as undergraduate sure. who read the education of Henry Adams. Um, in fact, I I've reread it since. Uh, yeah. I know that that's there are basically there are zero. It's a binary ch- set. There are people who hate it, and there are people who reread it. Yeah. So 
even though I've always disliked him, I still like to reread his book. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I actually went back and, and we read most of Henry's things. And, and um, uh, last fall, I, I was able to actually visit Montserrat Michel in, in the north of France. And, and, and it's, it's every bit as amazing as Henry described it. Um, and, but but Henry today is, is pretty much read by by right American intellectual historians yeah. by by literary critics not so much by by historians and and um, the last biography of Charles Francis Senior uh, is 1961. Wow! So that was a really you know quite a quite a while ago. Well, you certainly convinced me. I felt embarrassed that I knew so little about Charles Francis Senior, and you certainly convinced me of his importance um, for this generation. You're talking about the third and fourth generations. It's interesting uh, for Charles Francis, given the way that he spent his early life, even his grandfather was less of a presence in his life than one might think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So John Quincy is, I, I think you purposely bookended the book, right, with him? Yes. Um, on, yeah. on purpose. Um, how you said in, you, we just got, before we started the podcast, you were talking about the, the labor of this book and you mentioned this in the acknowledgments. The problem you had was too much information. Could you describe that? How did you work that problem out eventually? Because that is a problem. <laughs> I'm not sure I did, but uh, well, you know, historians always want to have have more data, especially those of us who work in early America. Um, you know, the documentation is not as rich as somebody who writes about about the you know the 1960s or something like that, and and uh, especially for those of us who who work in slave studies. Um, for Gabriel, for Denmark Vesey, there, there's not the kind of letters or diaries that, that historians you know, would love to have. Um, and in this case, there, there really just was too much. I mean, the, all of the Adamses are diarists, and, and so they all have – I mean, every single one has has a detailed diary. Uh, Charles Francis Adams, four or five pages a day. Um, wow. And, and more on Sunday. Uh, then, of course, their official correspondence, then their private correspondence, then – uh, when they give speeches, those are pamphlets, and and then they write books. And Henry wrote novels and books of history, and and um, so um, and, and in the end, I just I just and they're very very quotable because they're they're very um, brilliant, uh, bitchy people in many ways. Their diaries are full with with caustic comments about themselves, yeah. each other. They're yeah, they, they're, they're caustic about everyone. Including themselves. That's yeah. always the thing. They're self. There's. I mean, I, I've only read a little bit of John Quincy's diary, but at certain point, just, just John JQA. Just you know, stop, relax a little bit. Yeah. You're not you're not that bad. But they're all like that. Well, that, that's it's also kind of an old New England Calvinist trait. You know, you're yeah. sort of really examining oneself. Of course, it goes back to the time when, when they're trying to find out are they the elect? Are they really sort yeah. of looking into the souls? And so, it's it's an Adam's trait to be. Very brutal when it comes to to self examination, uh, and they're they're very critical of, of themselves. Yeah, um, uh, and and no one else quite measures up either. So let's uh, speak about uh, John. How did you in the end? How did you stop though? I'm, I, that's what I'm. And how did you? Well, I mean, let me ask you a, a pro tip. Sure. How did you keep your notes? That's how I was, can we get into that nitty gritty. Sure. Well, again. Um, the Mass Historical Society, bless them, has, has put all of the Adams papers going back to John and Abigail on microfilm. Uh, and they would send me four boxes of reels at a time. And I'd sit there in my college library. We have a microfilm reader printer. And I would just sit there and, and think, oh, that's that's a great quotation. I'd hit print. And so I had this literally several feet tall of, of, of you know, the, these Xeroxes of, of their correspondence. Um, and uh, only only Sister Lou, who we'll talk about in a minute, who, who was Charles Francis Sr.'s oldest child, 
Um, she had terrible handwriting. In fact, at one point, Charles' dad writes to her and says, I, I can't read your letters. You need, you need like, write more legibly. Uh, but most of them have really great handwriting. So reading their diaries is, is not, not a problem. Hmm. Not like reading Monroe or Garrett Smith, who's just the handwriting is just indecipherable. Mm-hmm. So how did you keep track of all this stuff? I mean, you had all these letters. Did you start to sort them into files? I mean, what yes, did you, you right. did? Every, 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 every chapter had, had its own file. Um, and, and, you know, that you're a historian. You see you know, that that evolves. And so at one point, chapter one became two chapters. It just became too big. And, and my wife, who's the historian, Lee Fought, said, no, this, this is – you've got to cut it in half here. And so the, those things kind of change over time. Um, but but yeah, every chapter had its own giant file, and usually about about this this thick. Um, and also also newspaper, you know, accounts that kind of that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but Charles Francis Senior was was the core of the book. So when he dies, that that's really the last big chapter, and then after that is is the epilogue, kind of what happens in the remaining years of, of the fourth generation. But but he was he was the he became early on the, really the kind of the essence of the book. Yeah, he is the essence of the book. Um, so let's talk about John Quincy as seen by Charles Francis. Um, how uh, Charles Francis is born? What year? Uh, he's thirty. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. We're historians. Uh, We're bad at dates. Uh, Charles Francis, eighteen oh seven. Eighteen oh seven. So how? Yeah. Uh, so then. Uh, John Quincy is is I guess well he's prof- that's his brief professorship at Harvard I think right around right. that time he's he's he he breaks with this party he's a federalist right um he supports the Louisiana Purchase and of course in those days senators are elected uh, by state assemblies so so he's he's in the U S Senate um and and so the state assembly controlled by the federalists announces that, that he's not going to be renewed and so he, he quits I mean it spends a brief period in, in kind of political exile um and then eighteen oh nine James Monroe pardon me, Madison, uh, becomes president uh, and offers him um, a job and, and makes him the first ever minister, we would now say ambassador, uh, to, to Russia in 1809. So he t- takes two-year-old Charles Francis with him. So Charles Francis, and this is one of the reasons I think that his grandfather is not as important. He spends the next, what, yeah. 10 years, tw- tw- yeah, 14 eight, years? Uh, eight, eight years. Eight years. Eight, He's first eight. in, in St. Petersburg, then in Paris, then, then finally... In uh, in London, when when his father uh, John Quincy becomes the the second Adams to be an ambassador again, the term at the time is minister to to the court of St James. So you have delightful stories about him. Uh, he basically is an only child. He uh, John Quincy and Louisa. Yeah, yeah. He has his two older brothers, uh, uh, George Washington Adams, which in itself is a story because he's the oldest child, uh, and Abigail wants him to be, of course, named after after John, and instead they name him after. The man that, that Adams famously derided as a lucky general, um, and then and then John Adams the second is, is the next brother, um, and so Abigail announces and Abigail of course is just in charge of the family. Abigail announces they they will stay behind under her care, um, and little Charles Francis can go with his parents. Um, so he really is for the next eight years uh, an only child, um, and becomes very 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 close to his mother. He has a sister who's born Louisa. Um, and, and dies after one year and is buried in St. Petersburg. Her grave is, is still there. Huh. Um, so, so, and, and it's also sad because George and John Adams come to bad ends. Um, they, have, they have a family trait of alcoholism and perhaps some other sort of mental illness, it seems. I mean, yeah. in George's case, I mean, there's something else going on as well. Deep, deep, deep well, yeah. depression. Yeah, and both are drinking heavily, and then George gets... Um, um, a young woman pregnant who's, who's the maid in the house he's living in and um, and commits suicide. Uh, he's, he's told to come see his father in Washington and um, 
and apparently jump, leaves his coat, leaves his hat, and, and jumps off a boat. Um, and 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 John drinks himself to death. Yes. Um, and, and literally goes blind drinking. I'm not I'm not sure what he was drinking that would have that kind of impact on him. Um, but at one point, he writes to to his mother Louisa and says, "If only you'd taken us as well to Russia." Um, because he doesn't see his parents for for the better part of a decade. Yeah. Um. I I might not have come to this end, and and Louisa feels the same way. But it, you can't reverse that that clock. So Charles is educated by his father six hours yes. a day, <laughs> um, yeah, which is a which is probably the best school that you could be in. I mean, that's a, tutorials with John Quincy Adams. That's a that's a darn fine curriculum. Um, yeah, but. It gets it gets worse, and and you know both both John Quincy and Louisa were fluent in French, so they're teaching him French and German, yeah. and um, he's five, and they take him so he meets the Tsar Alexander, and 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 the Tsar of course speaks French, and and so the Tsar says to John Quincy, your son is very brilliant, he speaks French, you know, perfectly. So at that point, John Quincy announces it's going to be a ten hour day, regimen <laughs> in Greek, Latin, French. Mathematics, political theory, you know, and he's a kid. And even even Abigail writes from from Boston and says, you know, he's a kid. Like, take him to the park. Um, and and that's when he realizes. And this this is one of the the really tragic things I think about the book. That's when Charles Francis, as a boy, realizes how cold and unfeeling. Those are terms he uses. Yeah. Um, his father is, but then he can't break that cycle. Yeah. And then his son later on, Charles Francis Jr. says, my father was even colder. And more unfeeling than, than my grandfather John Quincy. So they realize their flaws as, as parents, but they can't seem to, to snap out of that that cycle and, and at least passing it on to the next generation. It really is. I mean, it really is quite striking that 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 mode of paternal relations is yeah. they they can't break free of that. I'm not sure that John Quincy felt that from John, but that's uh, that's it's but but I think maybe other sons did. I don't I don't know. Yeah, not not as acutely. Although there were moments where, where, where John Quincy is, is kind of toasting his father's success, and his father basically says, you know, that, that's not how we behave. You know, and, and you 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 can't you can't brag about this kind of thing. He says that in, in public to his son, kind of admonishes him. So, um, no, not as not as bad. I, I think I think John and Abigail, for all of their flaws, were were a bit more warm and fuzzy than, mm. than the next generations who were who were just not. <laughs> Um, so Charles Francis Adams, uh, he so he's got this close relationship with his with his uh, mother. Does he have? How about with his siblings? Um, well, of course, he, he, the, the the older brothers finally join them all when they're in London. Yeah. So he hasn't seen his brothers for uh, six years, um, and 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 they and they are much older. So when they arrive, it's like like it's like these strangers who are are taller, more 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 gifted, more more uh, popular. Um, and and so um, he he never he never really is is close to them, um, and of course their their career path from early on goes goes very badly. While his is he's he's very focused and yeah, yeah. Um, but there's there's a certain amount of, even with him I was surprised there's a certain amount of directionlessness. Um, there's there's a yeah. he's, he's got that he's in D.C. when his father's president. He's got a I was really shocked to find out Charles Francis Adams of all people has a mistress. Mistress, uh, yeah. Basically, just someone he has sex with. It sounds like a you know, like a uh, you know, lower class woman, unnamed. Yeah, he, he never mentions her name in the diary, which is which is yeah. too bad. Um, although, although it, in terms of also his brothers, 
there, there is a relative, uh, Mary Helen, uh, who comes to live with the family because her, her family's died and she, she's a relation of, of Louisa. Um, and all the boys love her. And, and so she flirts with all of them. Um, and then finally marries, marries John. And so George and, and, and Charles Francis refuse to go to the wedding. So there, there's that kind of strange competition. But, but this period of... of which, happens again, which happens again in the next generation in spades, yeah. uh, in the yeah. fourth generation. That's, I was, I was, I was, the drifting doesn't last very long. I mean, he, he's, he's pretty focused, in part because as an adage, you simply have to be. You yeah. know, and, and then his grandfather, John, you know, is writing. So at one point, um, he writes to his grandfather, he says, well, I'm reading some novels. And, and, and John writes back and says, no, no, no novels. You, know, you read political theory, you read Greek. Um, and so even from the you know, distant Quincy, you know, grandfather is writing these kind of hectoring notes. And, and so, yeah, just, just sort of drifting and finding yourself is, is not, not an Adam's no, trait. No, it's no, not they, allowed. They, they put themselves to some plow, however ill-suited they yeah. might be to that plow. Um, so he, he basically is running the family business, or he's managing the family affairs. Yeah. He does some law. Um, it never seems that none of them seem to enjoy the law as much as the old man, John Adams, did. I mean, no. who was no. really, I think he that was his best ever phase of his life in some ways, was being a, yeah. a practical lawyer. Um, no, you're exactly right. And, and, and for, for the rest of the generations, it simply is a means to an end. You get some training. Yeah. Um, Charles Francis uh, clerks essentially for in Webster's law office, only he actually never meets Webster, who's also never around. You know? um, and um, so it's it just, it just to kind of get that sort of practical experience, learn some political theory, and then, and then go into business or, or, or go into politics. Um, and, and every generation identifies who will be sort of the next congressman, senator, justice, envoy, you know, whatever, and, and kind of pressure that one person to, to then enter into public life. Mm. So then his brothers are dead. His father dies. Um, it's really kind of very tragic how he, he sees that both, I think his mother and fa father and mother, he sees their notice of their illness in the newspaper. Yeah. And then by the time he gets to D.C., both times he finds them already dead um, after yeah, gets, a long he gets, journey. He gets a telegram from a congressman family yeah. friend that, that, his, that his father's had a stroke and, and um, immediately hops on. But it's a series of trains, ferries, Boats. trains. Yeah. Um, and he's in Philadelphia when he sees somebody reading a newspaper with a large black border. And, and that's when he realizes that uh, that he's lost his, his father. But then that's when he says, I, I'm an heir to an honorable name, which is the, the title mm -hmm. of the book, because he's 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 now 41. His father was 80. Um, and John's wife is still alive, Mary, the woman he wanted to marry himself um, and has two daughters. So we realize this now he's the family patriarch and, and he has to and he has at that point five children, one on the way. He finally has seven uh, when when Arthur dies as a child. Um, and he realizes now he's he's the next the next Adams. And all of a sudden, like an explosion, <laughs> his life, he dives yeah. deeply into politics in a way that, yeah. uh, uh, correct me, he hadn't been before. And, uh, and he'd, it, he'd, been, he'd been in the state assembly right. before, right, uh, but, but not, but not, not a national figure. And, but, and so, right, of course, the same year, his, I'm sorry. Yeah, but so, and then suddenly in 1850, he's a national figure in the most, in, well, in, a, well, in, in a way, in an unprecedented way. Sure. I mean, for him. No, and of course, the year the year his father dies, then he then he's tapped to be the vice presidential nominee for the Free right. Soil Party. The, the year his father. Um, right, he, he has done five years in, in the state house and state senate. But but if your name is not Adams, 
five years in, in the state assembly is not going to get you tapped for for a national office. And so in many ways, um, when when and when he goes to the Buffalo Free Soil Convention, he's wearing black morning clothes and a black black okay. armband. And, and so to a very large extent, he's nominated because his father has just died. And so they're, they're actually kind of nominating John Quincy. Mm-hmm. So let's just describe the Free Soil Movement because this is sure. really it's um, it's very interesting. Uh, I realize that the vagaries of 1848 to 1860 probably explain a lot of the 1866 yeah. uh, uh, stuff um, to realize that there is not one anti-slavery movement. It's very hard for people. Uh, there are, it's a, it's a, it's a quilt of different sorts of yeah. attitudes. That's a, good, that's a good way of putting it. And, and he's got one particular square or design on that quilt and he's not, you know, with other people. And that includes Lincoln. That includes sure. other that includes other free soilers, let alone yeah. abolitionists. And of course there are a variety of abolitionists. By this time, yeah. Fred, Frederick Douglass does not agree with William Lloyd Garrison. Yeah. Um, you know, there's Lysander Spooner, there, you know, there's others. So what's his what's the free soil movement in eighteen forty eight? Well that that the war of Mexico had just ended. Um and, and so the Mexican session uh has, has been has been approved by by Congress. And so five hundred Thousand square miles in the American Southwest uh, is now kind of up for grabs and will become free soil or slave soil. So the Free Soil Party is the first anti-slavery, anti-expansionist party. But 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 the, the platform and and nineteenth century platforms matter. They're like six eight pages. People actually read them, unlike today, where you know they, they exist but no one cares. Um, so the Free Soil Party, although it's anti-slavery, is not an abolitionist party. As you mentioned, there, there's the big gulf, and, and so abolitionists like Garrison or Douglas. Once slavery ended yesterday in the South, and so the Free Soil agenda is to um, keep it where it is, uh, keep it out of the Midwest or the Southwest, um, allow it to die what they think is its own kind of clumsy, non-capitalist mode of production. Um, so, so they're critical of what they call the slave power, which which is, you know, white planter control of Congress. Um, but there's there's nothing in the platform that says slavery must end tomorrow or or you know, 1920 um, in, in the South. And so it simply is a restrictionist party, but it's also therefore the forerunner of the Republicans in 1854. Uh, and a lot of the same people uh, who then, you know, are free soil, including Adams, become important Republicans. But for, for abolitionists, they have to then decide, um, are they going to support this movement, which is, which actually is a very viable third party movement. It's not really just kind of a protest movement. Um, understanding that it's, it's not, pro-black and it's not, you know, it's not an abolitionist movement. Um, although Douglas does go to the convention in Buffalo, in part because he's just down the road in Rochester. Um, and, and they're hoping to kind of, you know, use this and shove it in, into a more progressive and more radical position. Um, but it, it makes it makes Adams famous nationally. It's, it's his first now national exposure. And of course, every story says Charles Francis Adams, comma, son of the late. So, so Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Southerners see any attempt to uh, keep slavery within its boundaries as, well, not only unconstitutional, but in a practical way, it's death, right? Yeah. Because uh, they understand some things that I sometimes think that we still don't, that that you have to look at from their perspective and not from the abolitionist perspective. They understand that that keeping it within its bounds means a greater increase of the slave population, means a greater diminution of the white to slave ratio, the white to black ratio, yeah. uh, means that basically a greater threat of revolt. Um, yeah. There's there's no places you can siphon off surplus labor. 
uh, the, the problems are immense if it's fenced sure. within, um, pr practical and also constitutional. And also, and also, of course, for decades now, they've been outgunned in, in the House because yes. of population. And the 1840 sees this huge influx of Irish, uh, you know, impoverished nationals coming into to Boston, Philadelphia, and New York, giving giving more power in the House. So they've they've got to have those those future states in the West: Arizona, New Mexico, California. Um, Balance out the, to that. keep the to keep the Senate balanced. That's yeah, not, that's the yeah. whole goal, right? Gives them, gives them a veto uh, essentially over over any legislation or any any proposed amendment to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, so so yeah, if they'd gotten the West, they, they they would have been able to bottle up slavery constitutionally essentially forever. And yeah. and they also want Cuba, they want more of Mexico, they want Nicaragua. So so for Adams, yeah, the Southwest is is just the the beginning of a kind of slippery slope of what the White South hopes to get down the road. Now, who's in the Free Soil Movement? We've got people like Adams, who has left the Whig Party, uh, who's discussed with Webster, Rufus Choate, uh, what he sees yeah. is basically Whigs are only interested in business and supporting business, yeah. internal improvements for business, rail, railroads, what yeah. have you. Um, who else is in it? Well, Charles Sumner is, is at this point, uh, Adams and Sumner, who's not yet in the Senate. He's in the Senate in 51. Um, are, are very close. Um, and interestingly, Lincoln and Seward are, are not yet. Um, and, and you're right, of course, there's, there's two branches in, in the Whig Party, and Adams is, is nominally a Whig. There are the cotton Whigs, also known as the conservative Whigs, who basically speak for the, the, the big cotton manufacturer industrialists in New England, yeah. uh, and the so-called conscience Whigs, and Adams is a conscience Whig. And he, it really becomes actually the leader of the conscience Whigs, who are trying to Turn this into an anti-slavery vehicle, but that's a New England thing. And then, of course, in Illinois, yeah. there's there's a difference in Whigs. Yeah. Lincoln certainly would not like to be called a cotton Whig, <laughs> no, but no. At, the, at that time, even. Uh, but he's at the same time he's not a conscience Whig by uh, New England no. standards. Um, right. No, Lincoln, Lincoln holds his nose and endorses Zachary Taylor, who's the, who's the Whig nominee in in forty eight. Um, and, and and Lincoln and Seward, I mean, who both of course are free soil advocates, are hoping the party can become more progressive. That that that, that Taylor will become um, a, a more kind of viable progressive Whig than than they think he is at the time. And in fact, and in fact, he does. Um, oh. they, they don't know it in '48, but but he does embrace California coming in as a free state, and and uh, the White South regards him as as a turncoat. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, it's um, and and of course the weirdest. Nominee is, is Martin Van Buren. Yeah, um, so the, bar, the barn burner Democrats. I mean, politics. Yeah. Just as I tell, I've told classes before. Politics. They they just have better names. You know, <laughs> scalawags, carpetbaggers, barn burners, yeah. stalwarts. Yeah. You know, we can keep on going. You know, but what's a barn burner Democrat? The barn the barn burners are Democrats who are willing to literally burn the barn down. It's, it's the old the old notion that you have rats in your barn, and so you you spite <laughs> yourself. You get rid of the, the rats by burning the barn down. Um, so, so they are they are essentially the the equivalent of, of conscience Whigs. They are, they and, and this of course goes on into the 1960s, where you have there's four former Democrats in Lincoln's cabinet. Um, yeah. So what they all agree on is keeping slavery out of the West. What they don't agree on is economic policy and, and that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, Chase is a former Democrat. Chase is um, a former Democrat. Uh, we've got so, uh, Seward, uh, not Seward, but uh, Stanton, former Democrat. Yeah, uh, yeah. Gideon yeah. Wells, I think. Anyway, but we they, but they Wells, um, Wells is a Whig, but there's there's. There's, yeah. there's four in there. Um, anyway, and these, 
Hannibal Hamlin, his vice president, was a, was a former Democrat. Right. So this is what you mean by that. This is why it's a viable third party is that you've got both parties are breaking down at that moment. Right. And there are people within what had been. It's hard to overstate the. There's a reason why the Whigs are called Whigs. They're the opposition against monarchical government, and yeah. yet. By 20 years later, 18 years later, now they're making common cause. Yeah, sure. Uh, led by the vice so, president of King Andrew himself. Yeah. You know, the former and they, president. And, and, you know, and again, but this, this is why they scare the whites out, because they want to win. So they're not running a kind of protest Ralph Nader campaign that, that's going to siphon a few votes away. They're, they're hoping maybe to throw this into to the House by, by denying anyone a majority. So they, they choose Martin Van Buren, former president. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Van Buren had come out against the annexation of Texas back in back in '45, so he does have kind of free soil credentials. But but it certainly it is embarrassing for Adams. And Adams does say, well, this is a good idea because he, he'll get a lot of votes, and he, and they have to carry New York State, which has more electoral votes than any other state at the time. But but John Quincy and Van Buren had been you know bitter enemies all their lives, and and, and so all papers have to do essentially is quote John Quincy. Denouncing Van Buren as, as a you know terrible human and a bad politician, much to to Charles Francis's embarrassment. Mm -hmm. So they lose, not surprisingly. Um, but, uh, Taylor wins, but now uh, Charles Francis is a leader of the Free Soil Movement. Is that, that would yeah. that be right to say? And he yes. will remain yes. one for the rest of the 1850s and yes. arguably into the Civil War as well. Um, let's talk about his children very briefly. He's got the eldest is a, Louisa, a girl. Louisa. Lou, right. Lou, they call her. Um, Sister Lou, and she's, she's named she's named for the 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 girl who died in in Russia. And who are the rest? Um, so the next in, the next in order is is uh, John Quincy the second. Uh -huh. Um, and and John Quincy's goal in life is is to be a gentleman farmer, which um, he doesn't do in the end. It's kind of strange. He gets more involved in politics than you might but, think. But again, he's not he's not allowed to be a gentleman farmer. No, he's not. Uh, yeah. He, 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 most most of the Adams boys marry well, so he, he marries he marries into money. Um, he's the one living in the big house in Quincy. Uh, uh -huh. Charles Francis buys a house on Beacon Hill with his wife's money, um, and 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 yeah, all John wants to do is simply plant plant trees. But but the family forces him into politics. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, and then Charles Francis Jr. is is the third child okay. um, below that. Henry um, Arthur, who dies uh, as a child, uh, and, and confusingly, they all have, of course, the same the same name. And, and actually, Arthur's middle name is Adams, so he's he's actually Arthur Adams Adams. Um, <laughs> and, and <laughs> then there's Henry Brooks, um, and then the final the final child is is Peter Brooks, who, who then goes. So Henry goes by Henry, uh, and Peter Brooks goes by 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 Brooks, and he's he's the baby. He's the one who lives till 1927. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. He lives. Uh, it's. I was thinking about how long he lived, and the. It's really quite yeah. stunning the epics that he he uh, bridged. He makes, uh, makes it that long, but but again, he's he's considerably younger than 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 Sister Lou, um, yeah. and and he's kind of yeah, the after the after thought. Um, in fact, his mother is, is thinks she's menopausal, and all of a sudden here comes here comes one more. Uh, so seven children, six live. So. We, I, should we? Uh, we should probably talk briefly about his role in 1860. Um, what as he's a congressman from Massachusetts, but that doesn't yes. really that doesn't indicate the sort of the power that he has or the influence right. that he has. Not, I think, by this time, not only because of his name, but because he's a really good speaker, uh, yeah. and because he's a powerful intellect. So he's able to bring people to his side. He's able to persuade people. Um, yeah. And people see him as a unifying figure. 
because of his name, I think, and also because of his very carefully careful views. So how uh, you, you referred earlier to the 1860, um, as war is coming, 1860 election, what's his role? Um, he's a Seward supporter, so he's shocked and right. horrified when this one-term congressman is nominated. Um, yes, and the, Seward, of course, is a family friend. Yeah, by that uh, time. And, and of course, that, that's the view, especially in, in New York, but also in, in the Northeast. Who's this? Who's this tall, lanky guy out of nowhere? I mean, Seward has has a thirty year resume. Um, yeah. Governor of New York, congressman from New York, senator from New York, and and this this one term guy that, that he's so he's so little known in the Northeast. They they often don't know whether his name is Abraham or, or Abram. Um, and, um, and and in fact, Charles Senior never really gets Lincoln. Um, no. He never but spends any time with him either. I mean, that's one reason. We'll we'll get yeah. to that. All right. When he's but first first fifty. So he's also he's also editing a, a paper. Um, yeah. And because he's in Adams, because of forty eight, um, he speaks all across the north. And you're exactly right. He's he's not he's not a dynamic speaker, but like Lincoln, he's a very persuasive speaker because he is so logical. And and for all of their their flaws, I mean, all the Adamses are just utterly brilliant. Um, so yeah. you read his speeches, and it's like pieces falling into place, and you can just see why the audience is thinking. Okay, yeah, I'm following you with this because it, it just is very, very persuasive. So he says things in his diary like, you know, I don't have the big voice. I don't have the kind of stage presence. I'm a Douglas. But at the end of his speeches, people are on their feet throwing hats in mm -hmm. the air. He just takes them where he wants to, to take them. Um, and um, and so he's elected to Congress in 58 uh, from from uh, the, the Boston district. He's not, not the Quincy district. Um, and then is reelected uh, in 60, the same year as, uh, as Lincoln, and then plays a, a critical role in, in the Committee of 33, trying to find some kind of compromise solution, which then costs him his friendship with, with uh, Sumner, because, yeah. because he's willing to find a middle ground that Sumner is not. And, I, and, and, and Seward is. Yeah. I have to say, the more I read about Sumner, I'm back to like the first volume of David Herbert Donald's biography. I, 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 the more you read about Sumner, the less there's reason to like him as a, as a person. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I think actually Donald was, was a bit un, unfair. I, I like I like Sumner more than, than, than Donald. That's what everyone says, and in fact, of course, the second famously the second volume of of his Sumner biography, Sumner improves. Yeah. Um, although arguably it's the other way around. I mean, I think Sumner is is becomes less likable as he gets older, and you know, and more um, in love with himself. Uh, but well, certainly. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's every senator, of course, it's a disease that affects every senator in American history. But, but, but interesting story is, is yeah. that um, Adams is slightly older than Sumner, and 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 they've been editing this paper together, which Adams owned because he had the money. So Sumner writes the occasional column, but he's not he's not you know an advancing position. So in fifty one, there's an opening in the Senate, and again, this is a time in which state assemblies choose the senator, and 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 Sumner says to Adams, like, you're the senior partner here. This this is this is your position. And and Adams really wants it, but of course they have to come and knock on his door and say, "Will you please stand for the Senate?" And and he won't. And so he says to Sumner, "Well, then you should do it." And Sumner's like, "Not a problem." So so Sumner then becomes the senator. And and think how things might have been different had, had oh. Adams. I mean, it, he he as well as as Seward would have been one of the big front runners for for sixty. No, um, I, 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 I saw that and I'm glad you brought that up because this also this is something about Adams in which he refuses to ask because he is from the era in which, you know, Washington, his father, they don't ask to be president. People yeah. just elect them. Yeah. Uh, you know, a true noble politician doesn't ask. He waits to be asked. 
Yeah. It doesn't put out feelers, all the rest of that stuff. Um, and yet he doesn't really believe that because he's always resentful, like his grandfather, yeah. at not being asked. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet at the same time, if he had even showed the slightest interest in 1851, he would have been senator yeah. and quite possibly would have had a third Adams in 1860. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because uh, really, I mean, that's, you convinced me that he really is such an impressive figure. Um, as we'll see, he's one of the, probably the greatest ambassador in American history, yeah. even better than his father, which is saying something. Yeah. yeah I think uh, so, too. Yeah. so let's talk about that. He is Lincoln, uh, gives him the ambassadorship to England uh, right. to Brit to Britain uh, at Seward's request, and he goes over there. He's there for what till eighteen sixty eight or eighteen sixty seven years. Seven years. He's hoping it'll be for it most. Um, every time he plans to come back, there's some kind of new crisis. He's planning to come back, and then Lincoln is shot. He's planning to come back, and then Johnson is impeached, and and so he's he finally just says, "I'm coming home. You guys do whatever you want, but I'm I'm getting on on the boat. And I'm coming home." So he comes back. In, in 68. So he quits in 67, does a little tour of Europe, and comes back in 68. And it's um, ambassadors have a, perhaps at a position of um, maximum information and yet from home and yet maximum freedom because there's about a two week yeah. steamship delay. Yeah. So you're not yeah. completely cut off on your own like Franklin and, and John Adams and John Jay were at the tr Paris Treaty negotiations. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you say, you know what, he, he's able to read the American newspapers, yet at the same time, responding to a crisis, he has a certain amount level of autonomy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Undersea cable has been broken after like a month. So he can't get, yeah. he can't be micromanaged uh, by cables. Um, so what are the, some of the crises, these inflection points? I, I mean, basically, how does he prevent the Civil War from becoming the third Anglo-American right. war? Because that's what he does. Well, there's, there's, there's a, especially early on, there's a whole series of, of crises. Uh, the, the Trent Affair, in, in which an American naval commander on his own volition um, seizes two, two Confederate ambassadors trying to get from, from the South to Cuba, to Cuba to, to Britain. Um, essentially, you, know, and you, don't, you don't stop British ships. It's not a warship, it's a, it's a male packet. But still, in the 19th century, they are the, the 5,000 pound gorilla. Um, and and this, is, this is an assault on, on British pride and sovereignty. Um, and 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 Seward had a long career of of um, kind of bashing the English uh, in part because he was always trying to get Irish voters in New York, which he never got. They, they just vote Democratic, but he was always trying. So so the British are aware there's this long history of Seward saying pretty incendiary things, and then then he takes routinely a, a very tough line and, and writes these letters to to Adams, uh, that that um, Palmerston is the prime minister who's who's pretty. Uh, pro-Confederacy and anti-U.S. Anti um, and then George Russell, uh, John Russell, pardon me, is, is the foreign minister who actually gets along quite well with Adams, um, who's, who's a bit more moderate. But but Swede will write these, these cables saying, you know, read this word for word to Russell. <laughs> and they're over the top. Um, and you're exactly right. Thanks thanks to kind of a two-week delay, um, I was right back and say, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of rephrase a few things. So, so I mean, Adams. Adams is not soft. He's he's very tough with Russell, um, but but he's not abusive or or he doesn't adopt this kind of incendiary rhetoric that that that, that uh, Seward does. Um, so Ad, Adams knows when to be tough, when to kind of back off, um, because again, he's basically raised in, in Europe and, and as a boy, 
in London. He goes to find the house where, where he lived with his dad, John Quincy, uh, while he's there. Uh, but he understands their personality, you know, kind of when, when the, the English back might be up a bit too much um, and how to kind of soften the blow. So so he's, he's a really perfect uh, choice to, to mm-hmm. be in that really tough spot during the war. And the other thing I noticed is that um, he is masterful. I mean, I, I, what I hadn't realized, I knew that he was a great ambassador. I hadn't realized what a practical politician he had been in the 1850s. And therefore, I didn't appreciate that part of his success is his acting as a practical politician within Britain yeah. for seven years. Yeah. The ways in which he accepts petitions from city governments and mayors, the ways in which he's conspiring with John Bright. I knew that Bright's picture was on Lincoln's office wall, yeah. I believe. Yeah. I, I didn't realize. It, it, by the way, parenthetically, it's one. It's you realize how radical the American experiment was when you realize that the people who are aligned with it in Britain were the most radical politicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that. There's a reason why uh, they believe, and Lincoln believes, that the Union is the last best hope of man on earth. Um, that's something that people like Bright believe. Yeah. Um, because of their own views, uh, but uh, but. He's able to mobilize these people. He's able to appeal yeah, to, to, the, to the workmen. He's able to do all these it's, things in order to yeah. keep in order to keep the balls in the air and to keep them from landing on favor of mediation, let alone an alliance. Yeah. Well, th- thanks to, to Lincoln's naval blockade, of course, you know a lot of cotton is not getting out. It, it's a bit porous at first, but but it's increasingly tight. So for for big factory towns like Manchester, I mean, you know, workers. Are being underemployed or, or you know, even laid off. It's a huge crisis, um, so actually, doing, in the north. In the north, of yeah, England, it's a huge crisis. So the U.S. is doing actually also smart things like sending over kind of care packages and, and wheat. You no know, cotton's great to work with, but you can't eat the stuff. So the, the, you know, um, but but you're exactly right. The most the most kind of radical voices in places like Manchester um, are, are very much pro democracy and pro U.S. And, and of course, the the working class is clamoring for the right to vote in Britain, which they get in '67. The urban working class. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they keep sending these delegations to to the American ambassador, um, and and his, his his main secretary always says this, oh, they're at the door again, kind of approach, and and, and Charles is like bring them in, bring them in, um, and and then sends the, the the petitions back to to um, Seward and Lincoln, make sure the press gets gets hold of them. So, so yeah, he he, he is a politician who understands what is happening on the ground in Britain, and, and not just relative to the Confederacy of the U.S., but but what kind of demands the working class. Has yeah, in terms of their own democratization. Yeah, he understands like like uh, Lincoln that public sentiment is everything, which means yeah. that you actually you actually have to craft it, nurture it, and direct it, uh, in, yeah. or, in order to get somewhere. Uh, he uh, also faces two crises related to ships. One is the Alabama or Number yeah. Two Ninety, and then yeah. the the one I forgot about was the the Laird Ram. So the Alabama, that's that's the that that. The Laird Rams actually seems to me the closest that Britain and America were at war, uh, yeah. other than, you know, other than perhaps with the Trent Affair. Could well, you, I mean, the, you... the, the short version of a very kind of complicated story is that the Confederates are, are building essentially a navy in, in, in British docks. Um, and and they're, they're using they're using fronts. Uh, and, and so in theory, the Alabama is being is being. Uh, commissioned by by Egyptians, you know, so they're using all these these kind of sort of fake, you Red know, companies. Yeah, and 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 they're not actually armed until they get to sea. So then, when they, when they're armed, and they're called rams because they have this giant metal spike that comes out out of the front to, to literally ram, you know, other other shipping. 
so it's it's after they, they get set to sea, then 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 all the cannons are put on and and the, the rams are put on. Uh, so the Alabama does a huge amount of damage to to U.S. shipping, uh, not not to, to U.S. naval, but but to private shipping that kind of thing. Um, and so the Laird Brothers, which is a company that's very pro-Confederacy, um, is is building these these next kind of fleet of ships, and that that's when Adams really knows to put the pressure on, and he goes to see Russell. And says you've got you've got to stop these ships. And, and Russell says, well, they're being built by a private company for another private company, um, which, which ostensibly is an Egyptian company. And, and so the government can't really seize them. Um, and, and Adams writes him a note and says, your lordship, this means war. Just just the succinct. But but if this happens, you know, now it's going to be it's going to be war. Um, and on one hand. That's a bold claim for a country that's barely defeating the Confederacy at the time. And of course, England has you know the largest navy on the planet. Um, but Russell's also aware if, if the US does win its fight against the Confederacy, um, and Lincoln now has a fairly impressively large navy, um, you know, the tables can be easily, easily turned. Um, so 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 Russell promptly backs down uh, when he receives that that letter from Adams and um, and then does seize. The ships then being built, and, and so no more Confederate ships are built. And then later on, of course, Adams is involved in the negotiations over how much Britain owes the U.S. because of the Alabama claims uh, that, are, that are negotiated in Geneva, and, and wins a spectacular twenty yeah. million pounds sterling. Uh, just this, this this huge claim against the British. Uh, yeah, so his his last act for as a public servant was basically uh, representing the United States in Geneva at the mediation, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so he, uh, meanwhile, um, his children are all. Well, Brooks is still a, a teenager, uh, but yeah. they're all they're all experiencing the war in different ways. Um, let's talk about through, through them quickly. Um, Louisa Lou first. She's in a bad marriage. Yeah, she she she's deeply unhappy, and I I could never decide whether I felt pity for Louisa or disliked her or a little bit of of, of both. Um, I think like, with most of them, it's both. Yeah. Yeah, she's the oldest of her generation, and so um, and, and 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 Henry concedes routinely that she is the brightest. So were she Lou Adams, oldest child, she would be the next in line for governor, or whatever you know, to Harvard. Uh, and of course, she's a woman, so that's not that's not going to happen. Um, so she marries uh, a wealthy attorney who she doesn't really like much. In fact, she comes back from the honeymoon and, and says to her parents, "I'm moving back in, you know, without without Charles." Um, and they said, well, that's not really going to happen. And so she kind of wanders all around Europe and, and finally actually does die in Florence in a carriage accident. Um, so on one hand, I felt I felt bad for her that, that she's a woman in the 19th century from this dysfunctional, brilliant family, driven family. And again, were she a boy, she would have gone to Harvard and she'd be in politics. Um, but of course, Yankee women do all kinds of volunteer important things for the Union during during the war. You know, my last book was about these soldiers and Robert Gould Shaw, who's the colonel of the 54th, his, his mother's rolling bandages, they're raising money for the soldiers. Um, and and she is the daughter of the ambassador and she just, she has this kind of sort of aimless, feckless life. Uh, she has a miscarriage early on and apparently can't have children after that. So kind of for one role as a woman in the 19th century, being a mother is, is not gonna happen. And, uh, and she's always unwell and at one point, Charles Francis Sr. says in his diary, you know, this is this is not physical. This is this is there's something there's something wrong with her. You know, this is psychosomatic and, and this is not physical. Um, and yeah, you know, she's in a carriage accident outside of Florence. 
and uh, gets crushes her leg. Um, they want to take it off, and she refuses. Um, Henry gets there in time, but she dies of, of gangrene, and she's she's buried in in Florence. I, I found I found her grave, which they actually lost for a while. It's in the sort of overgrown, odd cemetery in Florence. But uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, there she is. So so I. I felt bad for her, but also kind of annoyed at her that she didn't take advantages of what Yankee women were, were doing yeah. during the war. She didn't uh, take it. She, there were ways she could have maximized her freedom uh, in the Civil War. Down, down there, yeah. organized the nursing corps. Um, you know, people people of her class um, are doing really important things for the administration during the war, and, and she just kind of wanders. Yeah. Um, John Quincy the second. John Quincy II, he mostly manages the family estate, um, but but his main job is is to to send money, goods, and and um, and, and whiskey uh, to his brother Charles Francis, who's who's in the <laughs> army down down in the south, and and um, uh, he becomes though a Democrat early on, um, and and simply has no use for for uh, even before Reconstruction begins, kind of Reconstruction era reforms, and and so he's he's the first of the family to to break with the party, become. A Democrat, and and again, his his goal simply is to plant trees and be left alone, and and that's just because he's an Adams. That's just not going to happen. And, and with Louisa as a woman, he's the oldest boy. Um, and and although although Charles Francis Senior identifies Charles Junior as being his his hope for the fourth generation, and, and not uh, not John Quincy. So let's talk about Charles Francis Junior is the one uh, the one Adams son who ends up in combat. Um, yeah. Uh, in the army against more or less against his father's will. Yes. Um, who's like any parent is not too excited about their son going off to war. Um, sure. And be although, actually although be, that's faced by, that's faced by hundreds of thousands of, of you know, American parents during that period. And, and yeah. uh, um, no, his, his, he takes Henry with him, Charles Francis senior as uh, a secretary to, to London. Um, and so it's going to be Charles Francis Jr.'s job to watch over fi- family finances and investments. They have considerable investments. Um, and all of his Harvard friends, you know, go off and, and, and serve and fight. Remember, again, how, how you enlist in the Civil War. You don't just enlist in the Army the way you do today. And you've got a guy in your regiment from New Mexico and a woman from Maine. Um, you go down with all your friends and, and cousins in, in the small village in Connecticut and become the Connecticut 31st, and then you're folded into the larger you know, Army of the Potomac. So so he literally goes down to the train station and watches all of his Harvard pals get on the train and, and go off. And after Bull Run, he, he decides he simply can't be out of it. And he writes to his mother first and says, you know, we're in Adams. We are the first family in America. And, and it, it simply is wrong for for, you know, one of us not to serve, and at this point, John Quincy already has children. He says, "I, you know, he's not even married." Charles Francis, and says, "You know, this is this can be my job." Um, and finally, does enlist in, in the cavalry, um, and writes his father after the enlistment and says, "Well, I've done it, and I know you're not you're not happy, but I've done this, and, and I'm proud of it." And, and kind of so there, um, and and Dad never writes back. He's just responsible by not responding. But he does say in his diary, "I don't understand why he did this." You know, Adamses aren't soldiers. We're, we're politicians and political theorists and, and envoys. Uh, and he says, you know, he's the hope of the next generation and he's going to get killed, which he doesn't. Um, and and um, Henry writes back and says, well, don't, don't, don't die, but, but, you know, I, I, I support you in this. But, but um, at one point late in life, well, of course, uh, Charles Francis with the fifth cavalry, the black unit. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. He, he's with the, what, he's with the first Massachusetts cavalry. Yeah. Uh, sees some combat. And then, um, 
he is has the opportunity to be what lieutenant colonel of the of yeah, a first of, lieutenant of, colonel. of an all black cavalry regiment. Yeah, the the first first ever U.S. black cavalry regiment. Yes. Um, and, 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 then, and then and then the colonel is wounded, and he becomes then the colonel. So he actually leads his men into Richmond as Richmond is falling. To uh, the first units into the city. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Charles Sr. writes in his diary, what an amazing thing it is that, that Adams has led this charge, but never writes to his son and says, you know, good for you, I'm proud of you. So he just, he just leaves that in his diary. So okay, well, uh, yeah. he becomes, uh, he's colonel of the 54th, of the 5th Massachusetts, U.S., all black cavalry regiment, and yet uh, he was racist in inclination before he became the colonel, and he seems to get more racist as he is the colonel. Um, and I'm curious. Uh, you say in the book that Charles Francis was not never used the N word in his diary. Um, he doesn't. He does refer to fellow speakers as the colored man, Mount Douglas or whatever, or Delaney. Um, but that's as specific as he gets. So where did he learn yeah. this from? Because it's John Quincy the second, as you've also said. He and they sprinkle. They never can use Negro or colored. Um, where does this come from? If they didn't learn it, I, I mean, it, it, it might come from the army. Um, yeah, it might come because from it, it certainly. It certainly it certainly is not. It's not a family thing, and to use the N word in the nineteenth century is a class marker. You know, yeah. Jefferson Davis does not use the N word. Huck Finn does. Um, so, so that, that he just uses it routinely, and then John Quincy picks it up as well. Yeah. In his response, it might also come from the fact that that Adams Adams enjoys being difficult. He says several times to Henry in correspondence, you know, just that's who I am. I'm just, I'm just kind of not a pleasant person. So he only has this sort of persona, like this kind of yeah. radio shock runaway slaves. These are not, these are not people born free in the North. And so there is this kind of cultural gulf between them, but corporals is Charles Douglas. Uh, the, the, the Massachusetts born baby son of, of, of Frederick Douglas. Um, he never mentions that. And he, he may not even know. It's, it's like he has no desire to get to know the guys. Fascinating about people like Rob Shaw and Ned Hallowell, who led the 54th, is is they, they have a certain amount of racial attitudes at the dawn of their careers. And, and um, they don't know, you know, despite what you see in the film Glory, they don't know black people. Um, but they, they learn to like and respect them. Um, and, and Adams does. And he makes these, these awful jokes. At one point, he writes back to, to uh, uh, John Quincy. And he says, well, you know, these guys are runaways and, and they're down here in Virginia. And he says, they're worth a couple grand each and I can, I can just sell my regiment and and, and retire. And, and he's not serious, but that, that's also not funny, you know. And, and so instead of like respecting the guys who are putting their life on the line, you know, under his command. Who are watching his back his, too. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Who could shoot so, him in the back. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, it's uh, yeah. There is uh, the I, I thought as I was reading this, speaking as uh, someone from New Jersey, that the Adams are all from New Jersey. They mistake rudeness for honesty, and just mm. you know that they they never they always are just simply rude and yeah. obnoxious, and always think that they're truth tellers. Yeah, uh, you know that's just the yeah. way that they are. It's one of their least appealing traits is that they can take that and 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 feel good about themselves. Uh, particularly when they're, you know, tell it like it is. I mean, but they're all like that. It's the study of genetics is furthered by studying the Adams family, <laughs> uh, both you know, obnoxiousness and alcoholism and other problems. I mean, it's really yeah. interesting to see how this works. So uh, finally, let's uh, 
uh, Brooks is still a kid, but Henry, what does Henry learn? Yep. Uh, this very famous section of his, uh, of his, ed the education of Henry Adams. He's reading Darwin, as we know, but what did he learn that he doesn't talk about in the education of Henry Adams? Well, of course, of course, the the the, the elephant in the room that he never mentions is is his wife Mary, uh, who goes by the the nickname childhood nickname of, of Clover, um, and I, I'd forgotten he refers to himself in the third person. So so it, it's always not my. So it's, it's like he's writing a biography of Henry Adams, not an autobiography. He refers to himself as Henry, and in fact, one of the copy editors, because I actually I'm quoting, and his name is in part of the quotation. The copy editor said, "Well, now who are you quoting him? Because obviously Henry's not calling him. Like no, Henry is calling himself <laughs> Henry." Um, and, and, but, but yeah, I mean, he, he never once mentions the, the marriage or suicide, uh, of, of his wife, Clover. She's, she just doesn't, and, and maybe this, who knows, be painful to contemplate. It's too private for a Victorian mind to reveal to the public, although he certainly reveals himself in, in, uh, you know, many ways in, in the autobiography. Um, or he's just trying to kind of shut out that part of his life. Uh, from from his own psyche, which is kind of my mm -hmm. my guess, but it's certainly the world's most unconventional autobiography that doesn't mention this this critical yeah. moment part. Yeah, um, no doubt about that. But he um, he still he decides that he's not going to be a lawyer. He spends some time as a Harvard professor, and yet what's clear in it is that um, certainly for Charles Francis Senior and for Henry. When they come back, they're coming back to a different country, yeah. and they're never quite in sync with it ever again. Um, you, I think that uh, I, 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 I don't know if you said this. Uh, maybe uh, you're certainly directing everyone's attention that Reconstruction changes everything for the Adams. Yeah. Why? Why is Reconstruction so hard for Charles Francis yeah. Senior to accept? I mean, for one thing, he never gets Lincoln because he never spends time with him. Uh, Seward, no. he reflects Seward's pre, let's say, 1862 view of Lincoln for the rest of his own yeah. life. Um, he doesn't understand why Seward loves Lincoln personally. Um, no. Or, or is converted to his view, way of thinking. He remains a sort of Seward Republican to his death, I think. But I don't know. It's very strange. Then stands with Seward stands with Johnson. Yes, um, and and, and it's true. It's Johnson true. And, 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 and and in part because he seems like he can have kind of a moderating effect on Johnson. He rewrites a lot of Johnson's uh, speeches and papers, trying to kind of soften. Both of that, Adams um, stands with with Johnson and thinks that that impeachment um, is is fundamentally wrongheaded. That that that. Um, well, House he, is, is simply taking too much power for itself. Well, he's right um, constitutionally. I think we would agree that uh, most people would agree now that maybe Congress was constitutionally wrong. That whole the whole bill they passed to make Johnson veto and all the rest of that. But we've got the thing that Stanton is like a classic barn burner Democrat. Um, yeah, and it, it just the, the way that you see people on going on different trajectories in different directions at this time. It's not as if everyone coalesced into one stable movement because of the war. Right. They sure. kept, they keep on going their own ways. You know? Well, but what I what I found what I found revealing is um his critique of reconstruction and and of course finally they all become democrats and mm -hmm. and, and the Charles Spencer senior endorses publicly endorses Tilden in in 76 over Hayes. Um is that their concern always is uh, about enhanced federal power. Is Congress 
taking too much power. In a diary, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of black men are being are being brutalized. Yeah, yeah. Lynched, denied the right to vote. That, that's yeah. just kind of ne never a consideration for him. And 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 during his diary, and he meets several times with Tilda. Tilda actually wants him to go in the South right after the, the election and, and try to kind of count votes and find out what's going on in places like South Carolina and Florida, the, the contested states in 76. Um, and and it, yeah, you keep waiting because it's widely reported. You know, the, the blacks were being denied the right to vote in South Carolina. They go down to vote and, and the so-called red shirts are there yep. with, with guns, bats. It never, never mentions that. Never mentions once. the Hamburg so it's, massacre. It's, it's, it's not. It's, it's always not. right. Yeah, never once. It's always it's always about political theory, mm -hmm. you know, dangers to the republic of enhanced federal power, uh, as opposed to questioning why people like like Sumner believe Congress needs that power, needs to enfranchise Southern black men, yeah. and and so to a certain extent, I mean, this, this is kind of the arc of the book, is that the Adams family reflects and mirrors the decline of the Republican Party from being this eighteen late forties, early fifties progressive free soul machine into a party of robber barons. But that's back on black Americans. See, that, that's the part I don't really buy. Okay. <laughs> uh, so this is where we get. This is where we. I, I, Charles Francis Jr. does become a robber baron. Right. Charles Francis Jr. does, although <laughs> in the end he's cut out by better and cleverer robber barons than yeah, sure. himself. What? Well, that's social Darwinism work. Well, <laughs> I guess. But 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 even as early as when when. Uh, you know, even when we've got in a Henry Henry's novel Democracy, uh, we've got his hero is a Virginian, a Virginia senator. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. already in 1876, there is a disgust with the modern age, which sure. the Republican Party and, and maybe this gets back to Charles Francis Sr.'s disgust with Choet and Webster. There's a disgust with the capitalists. There's a disgust oh. with the individualism. There's a disgust with all those other things. I don't know. There might be a disgust with the Midwestern farmers if they knew them. Um, but there's a disgust with all those other parts, the things that were part of certainly certainly Lincoln's imagination that he was able to unite. Yeah. You know that that's not part of their imagination. And you know, I think Henry Adams is basically he thinks yeah George Fitzhugh eh, he had some good points. Um, that the yeah. South, the South as an anti-capitalist system, is fascinating to him, and I, I mean, and I don't think the Adamses were alone. I was saying this. I think I was just talking to Liz Varen last week. I think in another podcast. And there's a way in which Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. shares this. Um, there's a way in which they all go over to the other side. They become. I mean. I'm sorry, I'm starting to rant, but here's Charles Francis <laughs> Jr. going around Virginia giving speeches about Robert E. Lee. Sure. You know, yeah. um, it, it's, it's, they, they convert to the lost cause. Sure. But I, I think there's a lot of things going on there. And, and one, I, I think it simply is their, their kind of general cultural discomfort with, with Gilded Age America. I mean, they, they just like, they just like, the Irish Catholics in Boston, but they just like like free people in, in Louisiana. Yeah, and, so part of the and they're not class they're real fans of the bourgeoisie either. So go on. No, no. But but in terms of and, and you're right, they all they all have a critique of of kind of rubber baron capitalism, even as they participate in it. In the case of Charles Francis, um, but of course the irony is because they've all married money. I mean, they are riches as kings, um, but in the acceptable but the way. But the question now, though, is who controls the money? Yes. So, so it's not it's not a critique of of the wealth 
Uh, it's it's who has the wealth. And of course, after the crash of '93, Henry becomes deeply anti-Semitic and yes. and, and just and just goes on and on and on about quote Jew capital. Oh no, uh, it's like to, it's like reading sections of Mein Kampf, some of his letters and yeah. you know, the rest. Oh, of at it. one point he writes, he writes to, to John Hay, his old friend, who's also of course Lincoln's former secretary, and says that. And this is the 1890s. The problem that we face now, the the problem, is Jew capital. And and John Hay writes back and says, Henry, like snap out of it. Um, so, so it's not, it's not who has the, it's not the capital, it's who controls the capital. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as, long as, it's, as long as it's the New England Yankees, that's, that's not, that's well, not a problem. It is. That's right. But they are making their money through rent, through, uh, genteel investments. Um, but the, yeah. the, the robber barons, that, that culture of entrepreneurial capitalism is, of and commercial capitalism yeah. that is not attractive to them. There's no, I, I, I mean, Brooks yeah. Adams' entire theory of history is the inevitable dissolution of commercial societies. That's yeah. as best yeah. as he has the theory of history. His kind of crazed philosophy of history. But this also, it's, it's also these are not the best men. Um, well, it's true. You know, and one of the points I try, one of the points I try to make is in the book is is that. You know, for for the early presidents, only John and John Quincy have have a son who lives to be an heir. The first the first one actually does that. Besides them, is, is Van Buren. Uh, the pressure of being a presidential kid is bad enough. Being a presidential son and grandson is is worse yet. And so every time there's an opening for dog catcher in Massachusetts or whatever, the, the press will always say it has to be an Adams because it has to be an Adams. Um, but but unlike. There's certain presidential sons that pop to mind right now that I'll not go into, um, but they're not only they're not only privileged political kids; they're brilliant. Yeah. So, so the idea that that these nufo riche guys who use the wrong fork, Jay Gould, you know, who's the guy who forces uh, Charles Francis out of the Union Pacific, um, are doing so well to them simply is a violation of, of kind of social norms that they're familiar with from their childhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, what you see back in, I mean, way back in 1824. Uh, when, 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 after all the deals are made and, and John Quincy becomes the president, there's still this tradition where, where a delegation goes and knocks on your front door and says, surprise, you've just been chosen president. And then you have a little kind of prepared speech, but, but it's not like, it's like you're waiting for them to come to you. And, and so they've been shoved aside, you know, this brilliant family. They're the first family. Yeah. Um, the, the, they're not only the first dynasty, they're the only dynasty at the time. Um, by these grasping Jewish Mm-hmm. Whatever, and and that's and 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 um, they're not in Congress, but Hiram Revels is mm-hmm. in the Senate, and, and that that's what they have a hard time adjusting. Yeah, to. I think there's 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 uh, certainly I wonder another inflection point is when Grant does not choose Charles Francis to be his yeah. Secretary of State. Uh, if that had happened, we would not be reading in the, the what Henry's most brilliant uh, barb that Darwin's theories are disproven by the president, the line of presidents from Washington yeah. to Grant. We wouldn't have yeah. we wouldn't have Grant as troglodyte and Lee as as warrior saint. Uh, yeah. We wouldn't have any of that if Charles Francis had become Secretary of State for four years. No, there's there's that kind of hilarious scene that I, that I talk about in the book where where Grant does come to New England and Adams very carefully does not come back from his tour of Europe until after the convention. He doesn't want to look like he's he's politicking, so he makes sure that the convention is over by the time he lands his his you know his ship. Um, and so Grant does come to New England. Of course, all the press speculation is he's there to feel Adams out, offer Adams um, 
Okay, we froze up there. Secretary of State. And they kind of stare at each other over this public dinner. They're trying to kind of puzzle each other out. And, of course, what Grant doesn't want – Grant, like Eisenhower, of course, is a political outsider. He's, he's never been in, in Washington. He's never been in Congress. Um, so having this brilliant – Adams looking over his shoulder and, and kind of quietly running for the presidency in 72 or 76 out of, out of the State Department um, – is it what he wants? So he chooses, though. He chooses. I mean, Hamilton Fish, who, who, who Henry is right, is is you know absolutely nobody. Um, and and despite despite the problems it would have posed for for Grant as as leader, um, yeah, it, 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 things would have been better had he chosen Adams. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he, he has a mediocre cabinet, and Hamilton Fish is a mediocre Secretary of State. Yeah, and it would it would change American intellectual history as well. Um, I want to just <sighs> conclude with one of your. Uh, your, one of your last lines. You say the fourth generation, uh, Charles Francis Jr., uh, Henry, Brooks, I don't know, Lou too, for all I know, uh, John Quincy, all came to fear that their life choices provided evidence of their collective belief that progress was a fantasy and that egalitarian hopes of a more democratic republic were wrongheaded. Now, my view is, is that this fits into a wider intellectual revolt against democracy that you see in the 19th century. Yeah. I think you can, uh, I think H.L. Mencken, of all people, is much closer to Henry Adams than, you know, uh, than, than others. There's part of this, the bourgeoisie and all the rest of this stuff. Um, and I kind of feel that we're almost at the same point right now. I think that we're like another election away from intellectuals uh, basically uh, exiling themselves internally, uh, yeah. as Henry Adams did. And I... Uh, I'd like just to have you reflect on that. That's collective belief that progress was a fantasy and that egalitarian hopes of a more democratic party were wrongheaded. Well, you know, part, part of what I, the balance in the book was deciding what, what part of history the Adamses are guiding, what part they're sort of being reflected by or, or a bit of both. And, and so that last quotation, Brooks does say um, sort of the really the last important Adams essentially was John Quincy. And we, we are appendages only. Yeah. Um, what did he mean by and, that? And what did he mean by that? Do you think? Well, they're, they're just they're just the afterthought that doesn't. He said he said will not be remembered in fifty years. And and Henry is Brooks is not Charles Francis is not maybe right, sort of rightly so. Um, in fact, they gave a book talk last night to local Civil War roundtable, um, and one person said, "Well, do do any twentieth century Adamses go into politics?" And I said, "There's there's one who serves as Secretary of Navy in the twenties, but but that's an appointed, not really. Uh, and of course, they're still around." And there was one. So, so, one was uh, the Chairman of Raytheon. I, I looked this up. I was surprised to see that he was like the oh. first, he was like a big, you know, corporate mocker. So that's impressive. Um, in the fifth, that was like the sixth generation, but still, it's not the same thing. No, and and um, so. You know, Americans are optimistic creatures, like our students. You know, they, they tend to think every day gets better. We're no longer hanging witches, and that the, all those things are true. You know, um, but but you know, it's, it's hard to look at, at what's happening currently and 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 read the paper and 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 also just the abuse of history. Um, this week, the president announced that, that the Emoluments Clause is, is a fraud, despite being clearly in the Constitution, that George Washington had two desks, one for business and, and one for politics, which is just not remotely true. Yeah. Um, and, and so... But let me, um, I mean, but it's even worse than that. Let me, let me, let me sharpen this up to make it this truly bipartisan contempt for everybody. <laughs> Do you, I'm sure that 
the majority, I mean, certainly for the last 18 years, as the gross domestic product has gone up, as life expectancies have increased, as every sort of indication of how life is has improved, Americans feel that we're on the wrong track. Sure. By overwhelming majorities. Yeah. And I bet you a uh, hundred bucks or your first royalty check from basic books <laughs> <laughs> that we could quickly look at a pew poll or something like that and find out that a majority of Americans of every party and persuasion are dissatisfied with democracy. And, and wonder if it's really the best system. And that's and that that means we're all becoming Henry the Adamses now, in, in some yeah. level, and that scares the hell out of me. I, my my response to that sound, uh, probably sound like Pollyanna here. Um, I mean, despite despite current events and and which I I think will be very very difficult for this country to recover from. Um, and and I think in many ways, what's happening currently is is not the cause, but kind of the symptom of of what what's been coming, as sure. you said, for several decades. And and. You know, America's ongoing struggle with race and having a black man in the White House. Um, that, that said, I, I think every generation does want to kind of look at, at into the, the past as being the sort of kind of magical, almost kind of better place in some ways. That certainly was the Adams's point of view. And, and remember, Robert Dole was going to build a bridge to the past, which American women and black Americans said, no, we don't want to go back to the past. And, and so I think to a certain extent, this kind of romanticization of well, the past was better. It was better when the best men John Quincy, John automatically had the sort of natural right to govern. What um, was you know, profoundly anti-democratic, and and there's we don't need to go into the long list of things wrong with antebellum America that Americans today would find horrific, and and so um, I'm going to be optimistic um, and, and and say that, that Henry was wrong. How's that? All right. Well, <laughs> well, thanks for that, that conclusion. Uh, Doug Egerton is uh, the author of Heirs of an Honored Name, The Decline of the Adams Family and the Rise of Modern America. Doug, thank you for being, once again, part of Historically Thinking. Hope to see you for really, your next book. Really good to talk to you. Thanks so much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.